You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. I'm so glad today we're here with a special guest, my good friend over the past decade, Samir Sait. Samir and I were good friends from business school. Samir was the chief information security officer at Amazon Whole Foods, and he recently transitioned out of Amazon to become a founder at a cybersecurity startup called Balkan ID. Well, thanks so much for being with us here today, Samir. I'm excited to be here, Tommy. Appreciate your time. Well, Samir, I'm excited. We're going to hear your story today. We're going to talk about the ever-evolving world of cybersecurity and some of the most important things our listeners should all know about. And then we're also going to learn about what you're up to at Belkin ID. And for our listeners, you know, we have a lot of investors out there. We also have founders. So I think there's a little bit of something for everybody today and that we're going to talk about investing. So uh, I do need to give full disclosure to our audience. I am an investor in Belkin ID. But we're going to talk about angel investing and how that came about. And then we're also going to discuss... Uh, what it is you guys are up to, really, really changing the future of the world as it relates to identity and access management security. So, Samir, before we get started talking all things cybersecurity, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, happy to, Tommy. You know, going way back, uh, I was born and raised in Dubai, grew up there, came to the U.S. as an undergrad, went to the University of Arizona, and got into computers pretty early on, uh, I want to say back in high school. I've mostly worked in large corporations, most recently, as you mentioned. Hang on for one second. So uh, you skipped a big part there. I think somehow we jumped from Dubai to the University of Arizona, and you just kind of skipped over that part. There's got to be a story of how all that came about. Tell us about that. You mean besides the weather? I'm kidding. I I think that's a great point. You know, growing up in Dubai in in the late 90s, there were not a lot of options for higher education. And my options were either go abroad or go back to India, which is where my family's from. And the opportunities in the U.S. in terms of the educational system, especially around computer science, information systems, technology as a whole. And back then, and even now, the University of Arizona is ranked as one of the best management information systems programs in the country. And so it was an easy decision to come here. I also had a ton of family in the U.S., so it made it an easy transition. So did you actually have family in Arizona or just in the States? Just in the States, um, big cities like Chicago, LA, et cetera. But Arizona was probably the best school from the program that I wanted to study. And hence, I ended up there. And this is going to sound like such a naive question, but when you were leaving Dubai, was this kind of like pre all this massive construction and expansion or was that had that already happened? Give me kind of a, a frame of reference on your timing. Yeah, the Dubai I grew up in was a much smaller city. The pace of construction had not picked up. There was just a little bit of openness to outside investment. But the city was still small. The UAE was much smaller. It was definitely pre-explosion of their their economy. Was this prior to the Burj Khalifa being built? Yes, absolutely. When I grew up there, the tallest building was probably 45, 50 stories high. There's probably 10 buildings taller than that now. Wow. So do you go back frequently? I used to. I used to go back every year from my undergrad days till about six, seven years ago. My parents ended up retiring and moving to India. And now with 
with what's happening in the world, I haven't traveled much at all. Sure. For our audience, if you're listening, we're here in October 2021. We're still in the uh, where a lot of the COVID lockdown and shutdown of travel uh, is still in the mix. So that's what Samir's referring to there. So, okay. So Samir, picking back up where I uh, rudely cut you off, you're at the University of Arizona and this is actually before cybersecurity has really become a big, hot industry for the world. So what was it that got you into that side of space? Or I guess into maybe even prior to that, maybe it was just information technology to begin with. Yeah, I think information technology was, and you probably know this, Tommy, growing up, whether you grew up in the States or wherever in the world, video gaming, getting onto a machine that actually has an input and an output, uh, you know, not static, if you will, like other toys. That's pretty much how I started to learn, right? Learn about computers, tinkering with them, taking them apart, et cetera, et cetera. I was actually much better at breaking stuff than actually putting it together. That's when I realized that I should probably find a career that works well for me. And and you said it right. When I graduated from the U of A, I got into more audit and risk management and looking for holes in business processes and and things like that. So that was fun. And Samir, from an audit perspective or, you know, breaking things, poking holes, what what was it that kind of got you into that when, again, at the time, that was still a really kind of uncharted territory for a lot of people? So it's a great point, Tommy. Even before the regulations were not up to speed with technology regulation or regulating systems, my interest in security was all about how do I find ways... To, to identify gaps that actually help create better process or better systems or better quality of systems, right? And if you think of it, you could probably use the word of a quality assurance engineer, someone who looked at process and process gaps and process holes, not necessarily nefarious, but potentially inefficient, potentially reducing, let's call it business availability, right? Starting there. And then what happened very soon after was, the Enron crisis, followed by SOX regulations, followed by GLBA, which is Graham-Leach-Bliley Act around privacy. And so all of these regulations started coming where it was no longer a nice to have an auditor. It's nice to get you know, a system audit or a technical audit done. It was a requirement, right? And, and that kind of helped me also solidify my position in the company I was at at the time. That's incredible. And you've had just such a tremendous career. Tell us about how you got started and and really ultimately how that ended up with you as the chief information security officer at Amazon Whole Foods. Yeah, I look at it as constantly learning, developing and growing. When you come in and you do audits, you can ask any auditor this, but you get to work on many, many different aspects of the company. You could do a human resources audit. You could do a financial audit. You could do an operational audit, right? And so you learn so much about how a company operates. And from there, I realized that I had a couple of options. Once I, you know, I think I was a pretty good auditor, you can either go down the path of being a career auditor, no harm in doing that, and going and becoming a chief audit executive, a CAE. Or you can go and become a specialist, right? I had a number of audit friends that went down the path of becoming a CFO or deputy CFO. My interest in technology and the fact that most systems now have our critical data, and without those systems, we can't run our environment, we can't run our business. I made the decision to really get into the system side 
And so security again was a was a nice to have. There's now there's more regulation around cybersecurity from the federal government and even state level governments, right? But back then cybersecurity was a novelty. And so I became much closer to doing things like pen testing, breaking systems, and showcasing that from a more systemic technical perspective and growing teams and learning from those teams. Because at that time, we didn't have coursework at, you know, Indiana University didn't have a information security program like they do now, right? So all the learnings that were happening was really through people and through, uh, you know, repetitive process. And I'll try to keep my answer short, but essentially by growing my skills, finding the right team and having those team become followers so we can actually go and to new environments and learn and, and fix the issues that we find. And then being able to explain that in a manner that a board of directors or a leader can understand, which is non-technical, much more impact, likelihood, probability, et cetera, has really helped me kind of circle the wagon from being a, a technician to a, call it a business-focused cyber risk leader. You know, one of the things I always like to ask then is like, was there kind of a big break moment that happened for you where, you know, you got an opportunity that really ended up being what, looking back, catapulted you to where you sit today? That's a great question. And I, I can think of a few of them, Tommy, but I think the one that stands out the most was being given a function when I was uh, head of information security at Mass Mutual. I was given a function called security operations, which is a 24 by seven. Think of it as the folks that stay up at night so we can sleep well. They're making sure that systems are up and running, financial transactions are going through, customers can log into what they need to see. I had never run that function before. I'd always been more on the offensive side and the risk management side. So the big break that I was given by the leader at the time at Mass Mutual was to run a function like that with a very different mindset. I think the learnings that I had very quickly was have a good circle of folks that you can turn to for advice, whether it's peers or team members within the company. The second is be open to the idea that you don't know something, but that it's not immeasurable or insurmountable for you to learn it, right? And so it took me a good six months to come up to speed. And I think I'm still learning. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm done learning, but uh, it was a really cool moment where I was kind of thrown into the, the mix of a 24 by 7 security operations center and having never run one before. That's incredible. And from there, Samir, from Mass Mutual, what was the path that ultimately led to you being the chief information security officer at Amazon Whole Foods? Yeah. So if you think about security, there's a number of domains. No one is really an I mean, there's very few people, let me say, who are experts in every single domain of security, right? You generally uh, have a, call it a superpower, and you learn enough to be dangerous in the other areas, and you hire team members, leadership to help you navigate the complex world of InfoSec. I think having run the security operations center at Mass Mutual gave me, call it the last leg of experience I needed to become a CISO. I'd done application security, cloud, you know, cloud is a big topic nowadays, cloud and application security. I'd done risk management. I mentioned growing up in that space uh, with audit and compliance. And I'd done strategic projects, worked on initiatives that were critical to a business, but I'd never run a SOC. And if you think about a SOC, it's like the starting point of building your first line of defense. And so once I got that experience, Tommy, I became pretty attractive 
for open CISO roles that were out in the market. I took a couple of steps to get to Amazon Whole Foods. I was first the CISO of a Fortune uh, 500 company called Arrow Electronics in the distribution sector. I was also the CISO of a security product company called Forcepoint, which historically was known as WebSense. And when I came to Amazon, I was, let me use the word battle-hardened, because Amazon Whole Foods, the scale, the scope, the threat vectors, right? If you think about an attacker, what are they looking for? It's huge. And so I feel like having gone through some of those battles in the past, it really helped me, uh, set me up well for a, for a job like Amazon Whole Foods. It, it's a little hard for me to even fathom, Samir. Like if I think of a digital just behemoth, you know, as big as you can get, that's kind of Amazon's digital footprint in my mind and probably most of our listeners. So how much, what's the right way to even ask this? Like how much surface area is for someone to go try to attack at a place like Amazon? Yeah, I think the Amazon footprint, like all large tech companies is ever expanding. And it's not just what you think of as Amazon, right? Amazon has got third-party sellers, partners, companies that we've bought like Whole Foods, et cetera, right? So I think the larger question in my mind when I took the opportunity, Tommy, was what is the motivation of our enemies to want to disrupt Amazon? What is the motivation of uh, competitors potentially, which are international that want to dissuade Amazon from coming into their territories, right? What was probably my biggest concern very soon after I joined was, you know, Whole Foods Market is a big distributor, supply chain of food, supermarkets, etc. And when you're dealing with a situation like the coronavirus, COVID-19, you have to make sure you deliver food to customers because they can't get out of the house for whatever reason, right? Uh, We had to be available. We had to be online. We had to be able to service our customers because it's life and death when you can't eat, especially in certain regions. You guys were the only ways that a lot of people were getting food at the beginning days. And I, and I remember even, you know, those early weeks, everybody was so scared. It was like everybody's even Cloroxing down their packages when they were arriving at their homes. People were washing their lettuce because they just didn't know, like, you know, what are we even dealing with? It's interesting to think about it from your side of like just making sure that that market stays open so that people can actually get their food. So thank you so much, not just to you, but for the whole team that was taking care of all of us through those especially tough times when that was the only way a lot of people were eating. I appreciate that. Thank you, Tommy. It's hard work across the board, across the industry. But it was fascinating to me, Tommy, having worked in distribution, financial services, You know, you have a clear line of sight in financial services. It's money that you're protecting of people in their accounts, in transactions, at rest, in motion, etc. But when you think about the food system in the United States, I can't speak internationally, of course, but we have suppliers across the globe. We've got middlemen, parties that package and sometimes, you know, put the food together or make it consumable, etc., And then you have us that are the front end, but we have distribution centers as well. There's so many points of failure you need to worry about. And I want to say 80 to 90% of those failure points are actually systemic, as in built on technology systems that track, maintain, manage, 
quality, safety of the food, all of that stuff is all tracked on systems. So it wasn't easy sleeping at night when I took the job, but I can say we came a long way and there was an incredible commitment on our side. And that's when I said, you know, it's time for me to start thinking about what's next. Like, how do I take my knowledge and share it with the community? Absolutely. I mean, from my standpoint, Samir, it's like, how do you go up when you're dealing with cybersecurity, if you've been the CISO at Amazon Whole Foods, like there's not a lot of room to climb upward. And so I love, I love your approach, which was ultimately to get out there, see a problem that you'd constantly been coming up against in the cybersecurity world and say, you know what? My next chapter is going to be as a founder. And that's what we're going to bridge into. But before we do real quick... I want to talk with our listeners about angel investing. And so uh, both Samir and I have done some angel investing along the way. And first, just to kind of give a definition of angel investing, think of it as you as an individual are investing in some kind of startup company when it's probably still mostly at the idea phase. You know, we always talk about at uh, Mammoth in our health and tech fund, we don't invest in ideas. We invest beyond ideas when the business is actually into execution. We don't invest in ideas though, because it's just too early stage for the size of checks that we want to write as a fund. But there's a vast network out there of angel investors and their job often is to invest in ideas. And for our audience's benefit, uh, Samir, you know, what you're often doing is either you're investing in an idea that you think is going to be a great idea, or sometimes you're investing in people that you know and trust. In my case, I've actually invested in both. I think, Samir, you've invested both ways. Is that accurate? Yeah, I have invested both ways. I think I'd say that I probably invest more in people because I truly believe there's a lot of ideas out there. It comes down to grit and execution. But I have invested in ideas as well. That's true. And so I said at the beginning of this episode, Samir and I were in business school together in the same cohort in Harvard Business School's Program for Leadership Development. So we have to give a shout out to PLD17, huge friends of ours. There's over 140 people out there that we're still all really tight as a group. And Samir and I were part of that. And when Samir let me know he was leaving Amazon to start his own company, and, you know, he said, hey, no pressure at all, but if you'd like to invest, I didn't even have to think about it for 10 seconds. I knew immediately, of course I am. I'm investing in Samir. I know this guy, love this guy, trust him. Doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect, but certainly if I'm going to invest in something, this is the type of person I want to invest in. So here's what's fun for me today uh, for our audience. I've invested in Balkan ID as an angel investor, and I was investing in Samir. I don't even know what they do as a business. So we're going to find out, and you, our audience, are going to find out at the same time I am. And so, Samir, I'd love to hear about, you know, what is it that our company is out there doing for people? Sure. Uh, thank you for that, Tommy. So Balkan ID was an idea... I want to say nine, 10 weeks ago, right? I met a seasoned co-founder, entrepreneur, who sold his last company to VMware. And uh, we started tinkering on a problem that I had seen in my career. Across all my CISO roles, and even before I was a CISO, 
I saw a real problem in the identity and access governance space. And to, you know, to clarify what that means, think about all the privileges you have on systems at work. Think about your HR system. What can you do? Think about your financial systems. Think about your potentially where you store uh, your code, your software code, which could be intellectual property for your company, right? So all these privileges, as companies get bigger and bigger, those privileges, those entitlements, as we call them, they're unwieldy to manage. Just because almost every system out there, software as a service system, Salesforce, Workday, Slack, I can name so many, right? They are platforms on their own. They have incredibly complex roles and users in those roles with different privileges and entitlements. And you can create even more custom roles with custom entitlements to see only a sliver of information, right? And so the problem that I saw as a CISO, as a chief information security officer was, I'm accountable for the cyber risk. I'm accountable for data being lost, stolen, either by an insider that's nefarious or by a hacker. Yet, I don't have a handle on who has access to what, especially if all my critical data is now in the cloud, in this private cloud that is managed, maintained, built by a software company sitting in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, right? Or who knows where else where their data centers are, right? So the problem statement for me was pretty clear. I want to get a handle on it. Uh, the solution was diving deep into, that's a lot of data to collect and a lot of data to analyze what's going to be beneficial for a chief security officer or his or her team. And that is, tell me the risk of that access. Tell me the behavior of that user with that access. Are they logging on? Are they using that entitlement or that privilege? Does that entitlement or privilege touch sensitive data? If it does, somebody needs to review this and approve it. If not, don't bother me. Let me just do my job. And then, you, you know, Tommy, at the end of the day, you need the least amount of privileges to do your job. What is that least privilege for each of us? And so I look at the world as changing where we all work from home now, or not all, but a lot of us work from home. A lot of us work remotely. A lot of us work internationally. What is my new perimeter? How do I defend my network when I don't have a perimeter anymore? Your perimeter is your identity. It's your access. And so that's that's where this idea became much bigger. And we got uh, a lot of investors, advisors like yourself. So really grateful for that support. And now we're in full product development mode. We're just busy building the product now. Samir, what will success look like for Balkan ID? Let's say we're three years down the road and things have gone well. What what will it look like? So, you you know this. I worked at Amazon for a number of years, and uh, you know Amazon's got this leadership principle called customer obsession, which I strongly, strongly believe in. I think to, to dive deep into customer obsession, the mechanism is to understand the customer's requirements and work backwards from that to create your end product, right? Or create your set of capabilities. For us, success will look like really happy customers, not just because we're giving it at a good price point, but because it's easy to sign up. It's easy to get results. It's easy to communicate those results to a board member or an executive team. It's having people be our biggest advocates. And I think that in itself will result in good revenue, good recognition, awards, etc. Once you have customers that are super happy with the result and can actually have defensible metrics to say, by using Balkan ID, we were able to reduce the impact of a breach. 
that would be the icing on the cake for us. I love that. I love how you're being proactive instead of reactive as well. And, you know, one of the things that was just pounded into me by one of my mentors on the operations side was just how much better prevention is than detection. And just that you guys are are saying, well, wait a minute, why on earth are we giving these permissions or privileges to this person that doesn't even need them? Those things just add up. And obviously you're going so much further beyond that. What are some of the things you would point to for other founders out there that are just getting started in their companies? And let's say they're not a cybersecurity company, but they are a, a tech company, software as a service or remote patient monitoring in the healthcare space, whatever it may be. What are some of the critical cybersecurity like must do's are there that you would recommend that any small business needs to be thinking about, even if they're not in the cybersecurity world? Yeah, I think given the proliferation of attacks against U.S. infrastructure, the concerns around insider threat through access, a lot of customers will be asking whether it's a small business service provider or a startup, like you mentioned, Tommy, they're going to have to meet a bar and that bar has been raised. Uh, Whether you know, in the past, we'd have these vendor risk questionnaires. Answer these 50 questions and have a SOC 2 type 2 and you're good. Well, now you're going to get audited. They're going to want to see proactive, I like the word you use, preventative, proactive security capabilities to protect their data, especially if it's in your environment. So I think being ready for that, getting ahead, building security into your product, whatever you're building, is going to be super important. I think the other piece is, giving security a seat at the table. So as your CTO or CIO or your chief innovation officer is coming up with these brilliant ideas to scale the business and scale the company or build a product that's going to bring in more revenue, think about security from day one. Consider the impact of some of these requirements to privacy and security. And privacy and security for me are first cousins, right? They, they have a lot of overlap. And if you consider that upfront, you'll, you'll save yourself a lot of headache in the future. And I think, Tommy, you asked a good question around people who are starting companies, right? So there's a security element, but I'll throw out some advice that I've was given to me and I think has been important to me as I've started a new firm. Think about your journey with your co-founder, with your team as a marriage. You are now married to your co-founder. You're married to your team. You're going to spend more time with them than you realize. And so early on, whether you have the heart-to-heart dialogues, you you understand each other's working style, right? You talk about life. You talk about, hey, where did you grow up? What, what do you like to eat? What's fun for you, right? Getting that stuff, not out of the way, but understood so people understand you as a person is super important to understand your pressure points, which will help make a much better working relationship as you scale. That's so important, Samir. Thank you for saying that. And you know, for any of those potential or would-be founders out there, I've really come to believe after founding multiple businesses that the one of the most important signs of the health of a company is how candid and direct can the partners be with each other, especially when things are difficult. It's really easy to get along when everything's going perfect, right? Everybody's happy. There's no problems. But it's when those tough times come. How trusting are the people around the table to be able to speak up and voice dissension and then on the flip side of it, allow the person that has the ultimate responsibility to make the call in that part of the business to actually make the call 
And then even when you disagree with it, you still have to commit to having their back and helping them be successful. And those are some things that a lot of people don't realize they're signing up for, Samir, when they're launching their own company. But those are some of the most important keys to success that we look for when we're looking at a founding team. How candid can they be around that board table? If everybody's just fluffy and saying nice things all the time, even when things are tough, man, that shows just a lack of trust in that environment. So thanks for speaking up about that. Samir, that's also a great segue. I want to hear about what were some of the things that you and your co-founders did before actually setting off and launching the business so that you could kind of make sure that there was going to be synergy there? Yeah, it's a great question because when I met my co-founder 10 weeks ago, he was focused on a different problem, a related problem in the data security uh, encryption space, encrypting the data, right? And, you know, we debated pros and cons. I talked about my experience in that. And I explained to him the problem that I saw with entitlement, permission sprawl, et cetera. And what we did really early on, Tommy, was we wrote a six-page Amazon-style densely written document with a lot of data, right? Not a marketing doc, a doc on this is what we want to build. And we wrote it in the form of a PR FAQ, which is a press release. So when you write a press release as your starting point, you're almost saying, this is what I'm going to go to market with. And so then you got to fill in all the details right below it with, this is the uniqueness. This is the market segment. This is the uh, value prop. And this is the pricing strategy. You got to put all of that together to support your press release, right? with what we call FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions. And so we followed that methodology and that served as a, as a, I call it a foundation to create white papers, customer pitch decks, investor pitch decks, and got us on the same page. Because, you know, Tom, Tommy, it's interesting, when we use the word permissions versus privileges versus entitlements, all of those kind of mean the same thing, but they kind of don't, right? And so we wanted to be super crisp on the terminology so we don't have the wrong message to either our investors or customers. And so 10 weeks later, we've got our seed round closed with investors like yourself. We have a great team that we've built already, both in the US and internationally. And we continue to have a very data-driven approach to kind of keeping everyone in the loop around how we're thinking and what we're considering, right? Man, that's really insightful, Samir. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, you know, for anybody out there that's still on the fence of thinking about, you know, do I jump out? Do I start this business? Just before we dive into the last portion of our show where I ask you a couple questions, you know, what was it? You know, you're kind of a conservative guy. You're in a great career. You're kind of the top of your field. And what was it that finally kind of pushed you over the edge to say, you know what? I am going to do this. I am going to I am going to launch out as an entrepreneur. That's a deep question because you, you have to, you know, Tommy, you have to think about it in multiple terms, right? One is, you know, I have a family, I've got kids, it's a risk. You think about it professionally, can I go back to being a CISO if this doesn't work? You think about, is the timing right? There's so many factors that play into this decision. But I'll say this, right? I kind of knew after I met my co-founder that I'd found a partner in crime to help build this vision that we had. Originally, I had a vision and he helped me kind of refine it. So I think finding the right partner helped make it easier to make that jump, Tommy. The second thing is I'd seen the problem almost at every job I'd been at, right? So I was like thinking to myself, it's not just a Whole Foods Amazon. It's not a Arrow Electronics 
And when I talk to other CISOs, they complain about the same thing. And I think finally, what kind of pushed us over the edge is when we got a plethora of investors like yourself and venture capitalists who were super excited to fund this because they saw the white space as much as we did. And so taking off my CISO potentially biased hat and getting validation from market insiders, market specialists, customers, advisors globally made that decision of, okay, this is a risk, but it's jumping in eyes wide open, if you will, right? So sorry to interrupt, but as a as a former auditor, it sounds to me like you made a very calculated risk. I think so. I um, I think as much as you can calculate, right? The market is so dynamic. There's so many smart entrepreneurs across the US. There's so many startups coming out of universities. There's, and you know, Tommy, you invest as well, Angel Invest. And I do, I truly believe it comes down to execution. The idea is good. A lot of good ideas out there. It's execution, it's team dynamics, it's timing. There's so many factors that I couldn't control. And as much as I tell aspiring entrepreneurs to sleep on it, it's good to sleep on it, but also go with your gut. If things feel right, they usually are going to be okay. Yeah. And, you know, I I tell founders that we coach also, like, control the things you can control. And if you have a good opportunity to do that, then, man, let the rest of the world worry about the things they can't control and that you can't control and go do it. Get out there, execute and do what you can do. I had one more thing, Tommy, unsolicited advice, which I like to give, which is wherever you look, there's going to be competition, right? Don't psych yourself out because there's competition. Competition is good. If someone is doing it and you can do it better and you have a path to get to, to better, call it path to green, then go for it. It's easy to psych yourself out and say, oh, there's so many players and the markets. What if this big company comes in and takes in the market share? It is what it is, right? You can't control the world. Like you said, Tommy, you can only control what you can execute on. That's right. Well, Samir, this is my favorite part of our show that we're moving into where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question all of our audience wants to hear about. What I really mean by that is it's the question I want to know. And then we'll dive into the real question that everybody wants to hear about. So here's my question for you today, Samir. You mentioned that your family is actually from India. And for whatever reason, we have a disproportionately large segment of Indian listeners to our podcast. And I think part of that may be because uh, one of my business partners in our our health and tech venture fund is Jay Yadav, uh, who is Indian originally. But because of that, I think they'd love to hear what part of India was your family originally from? Yeah, my dad is from a city called Bangalore, which is now called Bengaluru. Uh, Think of it as the Silicon Valley of India. My mom is from a city called Chennai, which is south of Bangalore and also has a pretty uh, large tech scene. It does. So I've actually been to Chennai, Samir. I actually used to own a business about an hour south of Chennai. Random. That's super random. But uh, I spent some time there. And then obviously one of my great friends from our cohort is also in Gujarat. So I've spent some time there as well. That's tremendous. And, And to follow up with that, where was it that your parents actually retired when they went from Dubai back to India? So they moved back to Bangalore. I think the weather is a little bit more conducive. And uh, they have most of their family there. So they're back in Bangalore. Wonderful. Have you gotten a chance to visit yet? I haven't visited them since they've retired there, just because of the, you know, the situation with travel. But they come here, uh, you know, they've got grandkids in the US, both my kids and my brother who lives in the Silicon Valley area. Uh, So they come more than we go there. 
Well, good. Well, Samir, we're going to wrap up on the real question that everybody's asking. And, um, you know, I, I have to believe that in our audience out there that uh, some of them listening do realize that they have these same problems that you experienced as a CISO in their identity management and protection. And if anybody wants to reach out to Balkan, what's the best way to do that? And also, who are the right people at this stage of your development that should be reaching out to you? So I'm happy to talk shop, talk security with all kinds of folks, whether it's IT, operations, security, anything I can do to help further the, the industry, the capabilities that are being built, happy to do so. But in terms of our design partners, we're really looking for mid-sized companies, anywhere from 250 employees to, to 5,000 that have are heavy users of SaaS applications, software as a service applications that are worried about access privileges being over permissioned. So from my perspective, it's easy to get a hold of me. I'm a heavy, heavy LinkedIn user. So please feel free to connect. It's Samir Sait, S-A-I-T. Uh, my email address is super easy as well, which is Samir, S-A-M-E-E-R at balkan.id and that's B-A-L-K-A-N dot I-D. Samir, thanks so much for joining us at Beyond the Ordinary. I hope some of our listeners out there can make their businesses safer and some of those middle-sized companies will reach out because I know what you're up to is really, really important. Uh, we want to keep everybody out there safe online. Love the work that Samir and his team are doing for that. And for our listeners out there, again, thank you. Thanks for being with us. If you enjoy the podcast, please make sure to give us a five-star rating and a great comment as that helps other listeners find us. Thanks and have a great week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.